0: let's briefly prayers. i come to speak about the very word of god father we look at your word we look at your instructions to israel and we ask that your instructions to your people all those thousands of years ago would be your word to us and to our hearts that we might obey we ask in jesus name amen well i'm sure you know the story some of you wouldn't have seen this before but here we go i'm sure you know the story boy meets girl and uh, they get along well, they fall in love. Proposal, followed by engagement and then the wedding, and of course at the wedding there are vows made, and they live happily ever after. I'm seeing some smiles. That's my son, it's not a real photo. (laughs) It's all fake, but it's a good photo, it's my son. You know the story, the vows. Let's get back on track. I, I took a risk. Everyone knows Adam's smiling. <laughs> and they live happily ever after. If only it was so easy, huh? You see, for this relationship to work with boy meets girl, they need to do some hard work. They need to accept responsibilities. They need to be faithful to their vows. And the vows matter. I, uh, Fred, take you, whose right hand I now hold, to be my lawfully wedded wife. Promise before God to be a true and devoted husband, true in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in good times and bad, and forsaking all others. To keep myself to her and her only until God shall separate us by death from this day forward for better or worse richer or poorer, sickness and health to love and to cherish till death do us part big promises big commitments these vows See, this is more, it's more than an emotional moment it's more than just fondness there is a covenant being made binding relational promises not to take advantage but to serve to be there to prioritise you to be exclusively for you. And if you have been at a wedding, I'm sure you've done this, we all sit there internally as we hear these vows and we say yes, yes, yes. Nobody argues, listen mate, if she gets loses her money, get out of there. If she gets sick for a long period of time, it's over. Nobody says that. We all say yes. Because... We understand what love means. And the vows are simply fair. It's going to cost. There's a whole new way of being and you are being bound together in love. And we know what love means. That's the vows. And We also know that if these vows are breached, there will be pain ahead. There's trouble. There's a price to pay. And yet as a couple binds themselves with these vows, and you have to see they're binding themselves, it's restrictive. You have to understand that as they're binding themselves, we know that if they're faithful to their vows, they will find a new freedom. The freedom of love, the freedom of security, the freedom of belonging in a deep way in joy. We're in Exodus chapter 20. We're gathered together. At the mountain. God has promised to deliver his people. In a sense, they've become engaged in Exodus chapter 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is to Moses, this is to say, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will take you. There's kind of an engagement. And God makes good on his promise. He rescues them. He defeats the Egyptians. He now takes them through the wilderness and gathers them at this mountain. And it's kind of what happens at the mountain, so almost ceremonial. It's binding. It's a time for covenant commitment. And the Lord, as Vic has mentioned, declares his love and his faithfulness. He says, You've seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people, the people all respond together. We will do everything the Lord has said. It's beautiful. And they're called to approach the Lord present on the mountain, almost like coming up to the altar to commit their vows. And actually as they approach, the mountain shakes and is filled with fire and smoke and the sound of horns and thunder. And it is fearsome and awesome and terribly confronting because they encounter the fearful majesty and holiness of God on the mountain as they are brought to him. So you see, this covenant commitment between these two parties is, well, they're not equal parties. One is the gracious, loving, almighty, creator, God, saviour, and the other is Israel, these people who have been weak, in slavery, complaining, frail, and bent over by their inclination to rebellion and rejection of God. In chapter 20, we come to the 10 words of commitment. These are the expectations of how this new relationship will function as it's built on love. And God spoke all these words. Here they are. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of of the land of slavery can you see even as we start these words of commitment that god is saying again i lead the way it's grace that comes first it's my commitment to you that comes first i've established relationship in a sense he says to israel you know i take you and i show all the initiative you are to be my holy people Now that I've chosen and taken you. And he asked them to make a commitment of their love. He says, this is how you're to express that you're my chosen people, that you're holy. And we have these ten words that God spoke. We call them the Ten Commandments. Which I think sometimes is perhaps not the best word because it makes them sound burdensome. It makes them sound extreme. I command, says the Lord. Well, he does sort of, but it's. But they're just ten words, and I don't think they're anything much more than wedding vows, which we nod at. Yeah, that's fair, that's good, that's right. That's what you need. This is what is reasonable for a relationship of love. Indeed, I do not believe these commandments are austere and restrictive. These commands are a freedom charter. They set boundaries and expectations for the new relationship so love can flourish and prosper. The first four commands are all about how Israel is to behave in relationship to their God, the Lord, their Lord and Saviour. And it's all about, guess what, love. Love the Lord. The last six commands are about how Israel is to relationship, to behave in community and relationship to others. And they are also all about love. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked by the teachers of the Lord. He says, come on, tell us what's the greatest command of all the commands. What's the greatest of all the commands? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the ten commandments, the ten words, hang on these two commandments. This week we're looking at love the Lord your God. Next week, love your neighbour. Today it's all about love the Lord your God. The first word is foundational. It's really all the other commands are a subset of this first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Very woodenly, you might translate it, there shall not be for you any other gods upon my face. There will be nothing in between you and me. There will be direct, transparent, unbroken fidelity and commitment. There shall be no rival to detract from my glory. There will be relationship which will dominate every sphere of your life. I will be your God And you will be my people, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, Egypt's gods, they were so powerless. Ten plagues came against these gods of the frogs and the mice and, and they were powerless. God parted the sea, the God of creation, and Israel passed through. He fed them in the wilderness. He provided water for them in the wilderness from the rock. They are his treasured possession, his holy nation. So in this covenant relationship, there are to be no other gods, none of these powerless, useless gods that aren't gods at all, period. When Anna and I made our vows almost 30 years ago, we were excited. There was a sense for us of this new day of security, And freedom we're so happy to be getting married and we knew that as we made those vows that there would be righteous limits we were glad to embrace them you see for me there would be no other woman for the rest of my life till death do us part forsaking all others I cleave to you and you alone Now, other women come and go and have, and I'm very grateful for that, as friends, as colleagues. But she is always before me. She has priority. And that is reasonable. That is love, true love, in a covenant commitment. And there are very many i'm amazed i'm stunned how many beautiful women there are in the world but anna is mine and it's exclusive and that is important that is the first word you see love the lord your god with all your heart and soul and mind let there be no other than the Lord and yes you know there are many good things in the world and they come and they go and it's good to enjoy them but don't ever put them first don't live for them don't let them ever become your God because they will fail you they do not save you They are not gracious. They don't love you. If you live for these false gods, these good things that are in the world, if you live for them, they will kill you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind. That is the first and greatest command. The second word really just builds on that. It's a direct consequence. We human beings, we just love to be in control. We love to control our beliefs. We love to control our relationships. We love to be in control at work. And we put a lot of effort into trying in every situation, in church, in our relationships. We love to think we can control our destiny. We like to think we can even control God. And so we've always been drawn to make representations of God, of the eternal, so that somehow we create an image of God. And then, if we can create an image of God, perhaps we can control our lives by appealing to the image that we created, because we know we're not completely in control. Be it a human form, a fish or a cat or a bull or whatever, or an elephant. But you cannot capture an image of the invisible God. The God of creation is outside of creation. The God of creation is not made of matter to see. The God of creation doesn't emanate photons to be processed by our eyes. The God of creation is beyond this created world. So how can you make an image of what you cannot process physically, God is God. He is not known through our imaginations. He's not known through what we desire. I wish God was like this. God is known through his own revelation. He's known through what he does and through what he says. And he says to Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so there's to be no images there's to be no idols, there's to be no Buddhas, there's to be no elephants with many arms, there's to be no fish and no cows, there's to be no icons to represent me, there's to be no statues that you worship. You might think though, what about verse 5? That's a bit extreme, isn't it? You shall not bow down to them or worship them for the Lord. I'm a jealous God and I punish the children for the sin of the parents. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, come on, you want to say, chill out God. It's just a picture. It's just a statue. And maybe we could direct our attention and our thoughts to you. But remember that first command, you shall have no other gods before me. So here's the thing. I come home one day. It's a poster, big long poster. It's Marilyn Monroe. She's looking sexy. I put it on the wall and I'm looking at it. She's beautiful. I love her so much. The next day I come home with a picture of Reese Witherspoon, a whole big length, I put it up on the wall. Oh, oh Anna, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. Then I come home and put Taylor Swift up on the wall. Oh, she's so glad I'm married to you, Anna. I love you so much. Anna comes home and says, what are you doing? Hi, beautiful. I'm just thinking about you. Wow. I am such a lucky guy. It's helping me devote myself to you, sweetness. In fact, I'm so happy about my relationship, I decided I'm going to draw a picture of my wife. So I get the sketchbook and the colours, and some of you know how well I draw. And, and, and I, I draw her blonde hair and her fair skin with my little pink crayon. And I put my blue eyes on her. And, and I take a photo and I take that thing and I put it in my wallet. And on my, it's on my screen, my picture of my wife. And I'm showing my friends that, who don't know her, say, have a look at my wife. She's so beautiful. I'm so happy. She's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. And even when I'm at work, I can look at this image of my wife and and think how how wonderful she is for me. And it's just an image to help me devote myself to my wife, to help me focus my devotion. How does Anna respond? Oh, he loves me. Now she responds, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) It provokes a righteous jealousy which will lead to a righteous wrath and I will feel it and I will be sorry and I better repent. Because you will say, you don't love me, you reject me. You are unfaithful to your vows to love and to cherish me as I am. If I put a picture in my wallet of her and on my phone screen and I show my friends who don't know, I say, look at my wife. And even better if I say, why don't you come and meet her? She is the best. Don't you think that will provoke a righteous jealousy that will lead to my blessing? She says, you know, he does love me. He is devoted to me. I am his and he is mine. So it is with God. We do not worship something that is not the true and living God. That is not his revelation. And he has revealed himself. This is a wonderful thing. The invisible God has revealed himself in human flesh, in his son Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, we're told, who is the word of God made flesh, who has come amongst us and lived amongst us, who is... And we're told we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who is our Savior and Lord, who is God with us, Emmanuel. And let me say, every imagined image that we make of Jesus or of the Father God that is not true to his word is a lie and deception. God says: don't make an idol. Don't make an image. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That is the second word. The third word builds on this idea yet further. The third word. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. We, we hear that, you know, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain, some translate, older translations used to say. And we think that, we think it's all about swearing. Don't use the Jesus word or the God word in your swearing. Well, that's true. But it, I think it's so much more. It literally, again, woodenly, you could say, do not lift up the name of the Lord your God for vanity. Don't lift up God's name for emptiness. I think it's more about treating God lightly, of using the, God, the Lord, of trying to control the Lord. Because you know we all hate to be used. We hate it when we become a stepping stone for others for their advantage. And and God's name is more than just His title. Like my name might be John. God's name represents His very being, kind of like my name represents my very being. It's who I am. So don't. Use God. Don't treat him as something light. See, when I gave, we shared our vows, when I gave my vows to Anna, I was promising to be faithful. If I use her constantly as the butt of my jokes, if I run her down in conversation with others constantly, if I actually just want her around mostly for the cooking and the cleaning, and to stroke my ego to fulfill my desires actually that's all babe thanks if i put her down so that i feel good about myself if she becomes a trophy wife which she is <laughs> but if she becomes a trophy wife perhaps like melania trump maybe i don't know i don't know the relationship but maybe is that loving She's just there for my vanity to make me look good. There's something dreadfully wrong. That's not what I promised in my vows to do. If things go bad in life and I shout, Anna! As if she's to blame. If I present her falsely to others to make me look good. If I use her name for vanity, it is not love, it is selfish narcissism. If I treat her name with honour and glory and respect, if I speak well of her and I serve her, and I'm always thinking, what would she be doing and thinking at this moment? If I adjust my life for her life, that is love. And that's what I promised to do when I made those vows. If you use the name of Jesus carelessly as an expletive, is that love? If I use or you use your religion to make others think well of you, to think that maybe you're more righteous or more pious or at a higher level, is that love? If I expect God to jump when I say jump, I know how to do that. Let's just pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, God. If I'm trying to just get the method right in Jesus, whatever it is, is that love? It's a gross misuse of the name of the Lord. and God will not tolerate it. Rather, we had to pray in Jesus' name with humility, we're to treasure the name of Jesus as our Saviour. We we're to know that there is no other name given unto heaven by which men may be saved but the name of Jesus, our Saviour. The lover of my soul, my Lord and King. And I just want to know him more. Just I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind. The third word. Do not lift up the Lord's name for vanity. The fourth word is the longest and the most particular. It's one of the two positive commands in the 10. Rather than negative, don't, was a do. And Christians often struggle, you had that discussion earlier, they often struggle to know how it applies today. It starts with a command. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. There's the command. Then the, what is required to do that. How do you do that? Well, six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord uh, your God. On it you shall not do any work. You're not to find substitutes to do your work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. And the reason? For in six days, here's the reason, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, And made it holy. First, we're told we have to remember the Sabbath. You've got to remember your wedding anniversary. You're sitting there at work, it's my wedding anniversary, back to work. That's not remembering your wedding anniversary. If you're going to remember your wedding anniversary, you're going to pick up your phone and say, Hey, sweetheart, hey, it's our birthday anniversary today. You're going to wake up in the morning and say, It's our anniversary today. You're going to maybe organize a dinner or bring some flowers. That's remembering. It's active. It's a special marker of relationship. So, firstly, you're going to remember the Sabbath day. Secondly, the Sabbath day is going to show that you trust the Lord your God. Remember the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who's done that for you? Therefore, the Sabbath observance says, I trust God to care for me. We all want to be self sufficient, self made men and women, masters of our destiny, and we're not. We're not in control. God is. And if we don't remember and have this practice like Israel entering the promised land, they quickly forgot the Lord because they thought they'd done it all by themselves, which was a joke. So you've got to stop and remember and trust God. You know, there's lots to to be done. There's more than I can keep up with, but I'm going to stop work anyway. There's lots of grain to be harvested. There's fields to be ploughed, but I'm going to stop because God's in control. And I'm going to trust him and express that by stopping. Thirdly, it's remember and trust and rest. It's a day of rest. God is essentially saying, spend time with me. Rest in me. You know, if you're at work, relationships matter at work, but they're not covenant relationships. The work's what you're there for, Yeah. It's not a covenant of love. In marriage, in good friendships, in family, it's different. Now at home there's cooking to be done, there's cleaning to be done. You've got to raise kids, you've got to go shopping, there's gardening. But if all of your, say, married relationship is work, 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 job, 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 job go, 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 that is not healthy. And it's hardly loving. You know, love requires rest. It enjoys time together to enjoy. We were with friends just a few days ago and we're just resting together doing stuff that we enjoyed. That's love. Because we're just enjoying them and enjoying resting together. If you're always busy, if I'm always busy and distracted, tell what she's going to say before long. She'll be saying, haven't you got any time for me? What what are you so distracted for? Just come and spend some time with me. I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. Because I don't feel loved if you're not just going to stop. She'll say, look at me in the eyes. Just look at me in the eyes. I'm thinking, oh, I'm busy. (laughs) You know, if I don't make time just to rest, perhaps I don't love her. Perhaps I'm looking for a distraction. There's something healthy and right about loving, to rest and enjoy and express relationship. God says to Israel, "You're got to work six days. Like well, there's lots of work to be done, but the seventh day is just set it aside to be holy, to me. And we keep thinking that what really God really wants from us is activity, that God wants us to do stuff. God wants us to make, do, build and create and sacrifice and do duty, 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 duty. But, you know, rest is better. Jesus um, went to Mary and Martha's house. Let's read the story. They came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Fantastic relationship. She had her sister Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and she asked him, Lord, don't you care? That my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Come on, there's work to be done here. This is not fair. This is so unjust. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset by many things. Yeah, I get it, Martha. you just got to rest. But few things are needed. Or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. Rest is better because relationships are more important and love wins. Jesus' disciples, Jesus was disciples because his cha- disciples were eating wheat on the Sabbath day. <gasps> They're doing work on the Sabbath day. They become heaps of walls. It become another job to be done. You're not allowed to eat. They're just eating grain from the fields. And Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. It's not like this law that's been created that shows you doing the right thing by following the law. This law is for your good. It's so you can rest. And then Jesus says of himself, So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the King of rest. When we get to the book of Hebrews, it tells us that as we enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus by faith in him as Lord, so as we put our faith in Jesus, we actually enter into God's eternal Sabbath rest. We enter into the final seventh day and all the work has been done for us. We don't work to get this rest. Jesus has done it for us and our job is just to enter that rest by faith. So let me ask, how do you practice Sabbath? You know it's for your good. It's part of the pattern of creation and the pattern of salvation. How do you practice Sabbath? Let me ask it another way. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? And will you rest for a while? In fact, actually, will you make it a pattern in your life that you rest in him so you don't forget his goodness? And I'm not saying about making legalistic rules. This is part of the problem with the whole Sabbath observance. Even in Jesus' day, we make all these rules to show that we're right. We make it a job to be done. Somehow to make us look better, to be, lift up the Lord's name in vanity. This is not so you can become a hypocrite, this law, this word. It's so you can rest in God and enjoy that relationship. It's time out with God. And let me ask you, will you trust the Lord? I know work's crazy. I know there's all these pressures. I know your family's falling apart. I know the bills are piling up and that you've actually committed to panel life and all this other stuff and it, the, and I've got to get to the shops and life's just crazy. I get that. You're busy doing, doing, doing and I want to ask, do you love God? Do you trust him? Will you rest in him? Can you for a while make a habit of saying I'm letting all this stuff go so that I can spend time with God in a way that's honouring. So I can spend time... You know a good way of spending time with God that's honouring? Spend time with others resting. When I was younger, we used to have all these silly rules. that Can't play football on Saturday, Sunday. Can't go to the, you could go swim in the pool, river, but you couldn't swim in the pool. Because someone had to get paid to swim in the swimming pool, so you could go swim in the river. stupid, stupid. Stupid. Don't, what if you enjoy playing football? What if that's how you, you, your spirits revive? Don't you dare go and play sport on a Sunday, young man? That's wicked. Stupid rules. And you don't want to do that, because those things might be resting with God in a way, enjoying creation. But I do wonder if we've lost something today, because you know when I was younger, no one no, shops didn't open. town was dead on Sunday. It was beautiful. Today it's just go, 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 go. And none of you make time for rest in an intentional way before God. And I struggle too. I shouldn't say none of you. know what I'm saying. Just be gracious. Sunday is a good day for rest. So make the most of it. It's a good day to spend time with God. To look forward to the ultimate rest we have, to know that actually the fourth word is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because you spend time resting with him and trusting him so you don't forget. Ten commandments, restrictive laws, antiquated religious duty or is it just a reasonable expectation from the God who in his grace has drawn us into a relationship with himself, into a relationship of love? Is, are these actually a freedom charter? God has shown us the depths of his love. No other gods before me, he says. No other representations, no other images to displace me. Don't use my name for your purposes, but honour my name and trust me and rest in me. Love me. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my commands upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden, my commands are light. It's great to be called to love someone. So you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Thank you for your patience. Amen.